Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. Hey guys, this is another bonus episode as part of our recent live StellarX event we held here in Brisbane. Inspirational event with some great resources. The next speaker I'm going to introduce is the internationally acclaimed performance psychologist, Jonah Oliver, who had a great session around sustained high performance and also discussed and talked to that notion of resilience and building capacity inspirational session as always with Jonah. I'm really confident you'll enjoy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. All righty. Thanks for making the time to coming along today. You're playing basketball in the street, maybe with a child, maybe with a, a niece or a nephew, someone you love dearly. And as you're playing basketball, the ball inevitably rolls onto the road and a car comes along. You stop, you watch as the ball gets hit by the car and you wave apologetically and get on with the game. A little bit later on, that same ball goes back onto the road, but this time your daughter runs out to get it and a car is coming along. Stop for a moment and think about what you would do. If you're like me, you don't stop and think about how painful that car's going to be on your ribs. You don't think about how much that collision's going to cause damage to your body. You go and you act. Now, what does that story tell? I like to think it's like humans are crap at pointless pain. Right? We don't do anything that's hard unless there's a reason. We stay on the couch, we eat our simple carbohydrates, we order Uber Eats when the shop's 500 metres away, we conserve. We don't do anything that's hard. But if there's something of meaning, we'll endure great hardship. So it's not how hard something is, it's how important something is. We're going to spend the next 30 or 40 minutes sharing a bit of a journey of the work I do with some relatively high-achieving, sustained high performers, and hopefully we can debunk a bit of the mythology about what separates them from others. It's certainly not that they don't experience pain, stress, worry, and doubt. It's generally that they connect of something of meaning. So I'm fortunate enough that I get to travel around the world and help people solve complex puzzles. How do we bring out our sustained best when there's, you know, some interesting stuff at stake? Could be pressure, could be an Olympics, could be you know, not getting my head caved in in a UFC octagon, whatever. And people think these people are born different, made of different DNA, wake up and 
sort of step out of bed with some different mindset. And hopefully by the end of our 30 or 40 minutes, I'll highlight there are some distinctions, but a lot of them aren't as big as you think, and they're certainly well within our, our, our reach. Here's one of my favourite favorite slide, slides of late that a colleague shared with me, and I just love it. It's hard to survive in the jungle if you're raised in the zoo. For me, this has such depth. This speaks to me as a parent. This speaks to me as somebody coaching founders, CEOs, and exec teams. It speaks to me when I get asked to go back to tertiary institutions where I studied to do a keynote and maybe challenge them on the way they're training and running tertiary programs. It speaks to me when I'm asked to come into a football club or something and help look at their you know, learning environments. When I meet with a colleague or a, or a, a client who's having challenges in the workplace, I go, you're blaming the jungle for being a jungle. I think this person's used to having three dead carcasses thrown into the cage every day and then released into the, into the wilderness and then they come and complain that there's some things out there that are hard, that your days go by where you don't find any food. I think we have to do a better job. And when I look at the colleagues and the clients and the people I get to work they embrace the jungle. They accept You're hungry. There's, there's days where things don't go to plan. I think our modern world is great. There's a lot of affordances. There's a lot of creature comforts and all these things, but I, I sort of challenge the way we're going about it. And I don't want to get into this whole Gen I or O or what have you, but I reckon if there's some people here running businesses and you've got a new graduate coming into your organisation, there's a fair chance they've come straight out of the zoo. Well, let's not blame them for that. Maybe your job is to help expand their, their skills so they can survive in the jungle. All these workplace interventions around well-being and this and the other, and they're well-intentioned and they're great and they're important, but maybe we've got to pivot people's mindset about the reality of the world out there. So for me, always reverse engineer. I'm working with an athlete going into the Olympics or into a UFC cage or into the British Open. Like, let's talk about that jungle. Let's make sure what we're doing is getting you ready for that. Otherwise, you'll have a violation of expectation when you show up and you go, oh, oh something's wrong. So you want to live a life of sustained high performance? There might be some days where you go a bit hungry. And that's okay. So I'll challenge the idea. I think high performance and thriving has changed. Here's 20 years in three points. It's not about reducing stress and pressure. It's about building capacity to embrace more. And I'll probably repeat that 100 times today. There's so much out there around stress reduction and trying to control the environment. 
This is building our capacity for embracing more. So then about positive thinking. I've been to a few Olympics. There's never, I've never seen a gold medal handed out for the most positive self-talk. Congratulations, you had really good self-talk. Here's a gold medal. And it's certainly not about motivating people. It's about connecting people to what matters. When we connect to what's important, all those motivational behaviours just flow from that. So think a bit about your relationship to stress and pressure. What do you do when it shows up? Oh, I'll stay really busy and not get there. Oh, I'll just have an extra glass of wine at night. I'll do that. We all do something, typically because we don't like it. What do my clients do? What are the people that I work with that seem to have some level of sustained success? They've changed their relationship to it. It's not that they don't feel the stress and pressure. It's that they're more willing to see that as the price of entry. They don't see it like there's something wrong with them for feeling it. We worry about things we care about. And when they wake up in the morning, their brain will tell the same story that your brain says. Oh, maybe tomorrow we could go for a run. But they put their shoes on and go for that run. But they don't have unwavering positive self-talk going, yeah, what a day, let's go. They're human but they have some degree of sustainability. Why? Because they're connecting to the reason behind it. I'll go for a run because it's sort of I'm meant to. No, I want to run because I want to be a healthy father so I can stick around for my kids and so I can be a role model you know, in their lives. Okay, now I'm getting out of bed and going for that run. Connecting to something of importance. I use a lot of metaphor and analogy. And just for a moment, I want you to be this glass. You're the vessel, you're the glass, and the water is your stress. I just heard on the radio on the way here that apparently interest rates are going up and there's probably a few business owners in the room. So I reckon this morning people's stress went up a little bit, right, because that's going to impact things. And I heard that gas and fuel prices are going to double or something apparently. And if you're in some industries, that's really going to put the stress levels up. And then somebody's dog probably got sick or somebody's child got unwell, so that's probably gone up. And then you've got a performance conversation coming up with the board. Or you've got to have a performance conversation with a staff member that you probably need to let go. And all of a sudden, you're saying, Jonah, I'm at my limit. I'm about to have a breakdown. I'm about to, you know, overflow. I need to do something. I need a day off work. I need some stress relief. I need to go on a retreat to the hills of Byron Bay and play some drums. I certainly need that extra glass of wine. Um, otherwise, I'm going to, you know, lose it. And I say, yeah, I can see where you're at. You're at your capacity. You're feeling like you're about to, to sort of overflow. How about for a moment, though, we stop, we pivot, How about you become the jug? How about you become the bigger vessel? Right now, there's still stress in there. There's still hard things. 
There's still things that might keep you up at night. There's some tough emotions in there, but there's a whole bunch more room, which means I can have a tough day at work and still be a good dad. I can feel stressed about the economy and still be a good mate at his wedding. I can have a whole bunch of stuff on my plate that I deal with at the boardroom. I still go for a run in the morning. I can have the inevitable uncertainty of the economy and the unknowns of the future and still make courageous business decisions. I'll challenge everybody to stop limiting your capacity. Humans are capable of so much more if we stop seeing ourselves as this limited small vessel. So all the work I do with my clients isn't about reducing their stress. You want to be an Olympian? We're going to walk onto an arena where you've probably got one chance, you stuff it up, you're going to have a lifelong you know, story of regret, but you don't want to be nervous about that. You don't have some sleepless nights about that. You want to build a business and float it on the stock market and take it somewhere, but you don't want to feel uncertain, really frustrated when somebody does something that doesn't meet your standards. It's the price of entry. Be the bigger vessel. And stop making excuses for why the other areas of your life suffer. You can do hard things and still be a good human in the other domains. So let's talk about these domains. There's a whole bunch of great psychological questionnaires out there done and really reliable and valid and they spend years refining one single question in the item. That's my favourite questionnaire of all of psychology. That tells me if you're having a midlife crisis, if you've probably got some mood disturbance like depression or anxiety, that tells me if you need a new job, that tells me if you're unhealthy. And I want everyone just to go through this journey with me right now. Just look at those domains. That's not all of life's domains, but they're some of the main ones. Just out of 10, give a score for how important each of those domains are. And most of you are stereotypically high-achieving perfectionists, so you're going to go, 10, 10, 10, 10, stop. <laughs> Be real. Don't give a number because that's what your you know, guilt of your parents want you to do. Fill the number in appropriately. Which domains matter to me? Give it a rating out of 10. Once you've done that, how satisfied are you currently with your life reflecting that? Give that a score out of 10. Pretty simple gap analysis. What are the things that matter and how satisfied am I currently with my life reflecting that? Anything that you didn't rate highly, let's call it a six or less, just put a line through it in your mind. If for whatever reason you're spending a lot of time in your life pursuing domains that you've realized aren't important, please make a pivot and dust and drop that out of your life. It's junk. It's probably coming from a place of fear or guilt or something. Now with the remaining domains that you do say these are important to me, now look at the gap score. And anywhere there's a gap of two or more or something, we need to start to think a bit about what can we do to bridge that gap. 
Here's the kicker. Look for pinball activities. What's a pinball activity? A pinball activity is an activity that nurtures more than one domain simultaneously. There's only so many hours in the day. You've got to architect your life. You've got to be intentional with what we do. For example, I want to improve my health and fitness, definitely some of my family stuff, sure, intimate relationship, um, social friendships, parenting, uh, and while we're at it, we'll throw in leisure. Man, there's six that I've said I've got a gap in. This weekend, if I get a surfboard, take my daughter and my son, ring one of my best mates with his kids and say, hey, let's go down to Talabudra and teach our kids to surf and hang out. All of a sudden, you can see, right? Family time, health and fitness time, parenting time, probably nurturing my relationship because I'm doing things with the kids and the family leisure time, and you come back from the weekend and say, oh, that was a great weekend. Hey, that was good. That's just, you know, you say, that was, that was good. You don't stop and realize why that was a good thing because you've realized, ah, oh, it nurtured multiple domains. I could do the same activity and just take my kids surfing by myself. And it was okay. Yeah, it was fun. It was nice to spend some time with them. Yeah, I, I nurtured one or two domains. If you can nurture multiple with a thing, make that a regular habit in your life. But there's one most critical thing that needs to be done during that. You'll see in the middle it says values. What version of yourself wants to show up? I can take my kid to the park and just be absent-minded on my phone, frustrated, tired because of something going on in my life. We've all been there, haven't we? Or I can be loving and curious and playful and engaged. The kids don't care whether there's good surf. They don't care actually how long you spend at the beach. They care about the version of you that shows up. Life's about living your values, bringing them to life. So whenever you architect your life and start to really prioritize the things that matter with the people that matter, you must do it in a values-based way. Otherwise, that whole moment is lost. So I love this domains profile. I use it with all my clients. I use it with myself. It's a great little technique of just quickly taking an x-ray of how's my life going. No wonder I'm feeling a little bit, you know, I've been traveling so much that I've let my health and fitness suffer and I've been away from the kids. Okay, all right, let's lean into that and dial that up. also means, why am I feeling so conflicted? Oh, because I'm spending so much time in an area that actually doesn't really matter to me. Then maybe it's time to take a pivot. So again, life is about doing the things that matter with the people that matter in a values-based way. I've got clients who come to me. I say, tell me a bit about what you do in the pursuit of high performance and thriving. Well, Jonah, I wake up at 4 a.m. and I do yoga and then I do my reflective journal and then I do my ice bath and then I do my charity work on the weekend and then I um, climb mountains and then I, I say, that's fantastic. Every single one of those things are great. 
But why do you do all those? Well, I saw on the TED Talk with the blog and the podcast with the book and the autobiography that that person did it. I say, wow. So the reason you're doing all of those things is because somebody else did them and you thought maybe that is for you. Your life sounds like a meat lover's pizza. Covered in ingredients, covered in crap, filled with sugary sauce, and costs five bucks. I want to drive across town and spend 30 on a margarita pizza. Because that's bloody hard to make three ingredients taste so good. I'll challenge everybody find your margarita pizza. Find the three things that move the needle. And it may be some of those things. It might be some exercise. It might be some mindfulness. It might be some whatever. But find out what works for you, not because some influencer does it. Find out what works for you and stick to it and leverage that. Half of my job is helping people filter the noise, stripping out the junk. You know, we have so much access to things these days. That's cool. But I think we're also drowning in information at times and not filtering. So take the time to think a bit about, you know, if you could only do three things to nurture your health and well-being and your pursuit of high performance, what would they be? And double down on that. And see if you can bring some people along for the ride, like friends, family, or people that matter. Find your margarita pizza. teach a kid how to use an abacus, something as simple as the 10 times table. They get the basics of how to use the the system. It's the most remarkable instrument. That same child, if you said, now I want you to do 12 times 120. That kid can actually sit down and solve that puzzle if they've been taught how to use an abacus. The psychological term is a complementary cognitive artifact. You don't need to worry about that. What it means, though, is if you're trained in something, it can then transfer into greater use. Train a kid how to use an abacus. They truly understand maths and multiplication, and they can apply that at scale. Google Maps. We no longer get lost anywhere in the world. We have never been worse at directions in history. We used to pay attention to landmarks. We used to notice the sun in which direction it was setting. We used to pay attention to that building on the corner. We used to be able to navigate our landscape. The moment your battery goes dead, uh uh-oh, we're stuck. Google Maps, whilst an incredible piece of technology that we all use daily, has actually made us poorer at a fundamental skill. Again, I'm using metaphor, but I want us to think deeply about your relationship to the primary skills that are required to execute on your life. 
I get brought into organizations where staff are getting sent on communication training courses on how to give performance feedback. Because we sit and use email and stop talking to each other. If you want to work with people and have interdependencies in the, in the corporate sector or in the sporting sector, you might have to stand up and lead a meeting. You might have to talk to a colleague and give them some feedback on how they're going at a task. Writing an email and hitting send, yeah, there's some efficiencies in email, but I think it's actually eroding us of some of the most basic fundamental human skills like interpersonal communication. So I'd love you to stop for a moment and just think a bit about, am I being too reliant on things like my Google Maps? Because when I look at my clients who thrive and shine and embrace the life that they live, I'll challenge and say, I think they're pretty good at sticking to the abacus. They'll surround themselves by people that they trust and they feel add value to them in terms of the content they bring. And they think, how can I take that information and take that further into my world and not lose the fundamental skills like getting home at night. This is known as the triflex. This is the complexities of 20 years of psychological science reduced into three points. That's my margarita pizza. Step one, and these in order, you have to learn to embrace. What does that mean? You have to learn to accept that the price of entry of living a rich and dynamic life, doing hard things, is there will be anxiety, doubt, frustration, Anger, fraudulency syndrome, they're going to work it out one of these days. All of the things that everyone in this room has experienced. You have to learn to make room for that. You have to accept that that is the price of entry. And then step back from it and see it just as that. Thanks, brain, just my anxiety. I'm about to walk on stage and talk to, a, to an audience. Normal. Normal. Cam Smith was so nervous in the final five holes of the British Open, he couldn't even swallow water. Oh, he was so calm and confident, Jonah. No, he wasn't. He was so able to accept that he was nervous and he didn't worry that he was nervous because we'd done that work. But his heart rate was high. He couldn't even sip on, it. He sip on his water bottle. But he was really good at embracing what was going to show up, the price of entry. So people who thrive in life, who succeed and have these amazing high-performing lives, it isn't about an absence of tough internal experience. To the contrary, they're doing things that are really, really hard. They actually have more probably stress, worry, doubt, frustrations than the average person because they're doing more things. You know who doesn't get worried or anxious at, a, at the MCG on grand final day? The fat prick eating a pie in the grandstand. He's not out there. My clients who are out there are feeling emotion. But they're okay at embracing it and seeing it as a price of entry. So get better at seeing tough internal experience as normal. You don't need to do something when it shows up. 
You don't need to fire that person or get a divorce or buy a sports car or take the medication or have the extra glass of wine. You don't need to do anything to get rid of it. You've got to get better at letting it be there. Once we can learn to make room for those tough internal experiences and just see them as normal, now I can anchor into the here and now. And that's where the stuff that a lot of people go and chase and you know, mindfulness and meditation and being present, it matters. The neuroscience really supports it, okay? But that's the easy part, really, just dropping anchor and learning to come into the here and now. What normally gets in the way of that is my wrestling, my attempt to control, suppress, replace the tough internal experience, which means, you know, you're walking around going, yeah. take my breath, yeah. got to come back into the present, and you're not because you're not wanting to be in that place of discomfort. So embrace the discomfort, let it be there, normalize it. Now I can just drop anchor and be present, you know. Taste your coffee when you're drinking it. Take a breath and notice it. If, I, if my racing car drivers can hit the button on their helmet, on their steering wheel, into their helmet, and release a tiny squirt of water and just track the feeling of the water going down their throat into their body, doing 350 or 60 or whatever kilometers an hour at the back straight of Le Mans, I reckon you guys can do it when you're in the office for a moment, right? Take a moment just to drop anchor and be present before you have that conversation so you can truly hear your colleague, so you can hear your child give you a report on the day, so you can then make some really good strategic decisions on whatever you're working on. And then finally, do what matters. Sounds simple, hardest thing in life. Do what matters. In order to do that, you've got to understand what actually matters, right? We spend a lot of our life doing what we think we should versus the things that truly matter. Once you take the time to architect your life and define the things that are really going to move your needle, you often might find that more tough internal experience shows up, not less. I do want to quit my job and start a new business. Ooh. All of a sudden, you're back into that loop again. Might have to make room to embrace what shows up, and away we go. So the three steps, make room for whatever's going to show up. If you're going to pursue a life of, of purpose and meaning, it probably means some tough stuff's going to get activated along the way. Big distinction between fun and enjoyment. Fun, having an ice cream, going to the beach, having a margarita, whatever. It's cool. It's hedonistic. There's time and place for all of that. Enjoyment is when we do hard things. When I ask my clients, clients tell me a bit about your, your week, your month. Well, you know, I've, I've started this new business and we're getting some seed funding and we're doing that or I've, I've decided to climb Mount Everest or I've gone to the Olympics and hey, tell me about, oh, it was really hard and stressful and long hours and, but they've got some energy about them, right? Life's about finding your capacity and then doing things that stretch it. That's what enjoyment is. So I encourage people to sort of define what that is for you and get after it. So to double down, what's your internal relationship to tough experience? What happens when those butterflies show up or that frustration shows up? that doubt, that worry, and what's my first response to that? Is it to engage in some form of control strategy? I need to suppress, replace, distract, get rid of that. I don't like it. 
then you turn on the television and see somebody doing amazing things. You think, if only I could be like them. If only I could wake up and be free from doubt and worry. And please, I work with those people. They have that in equal measure. If anything, they probably have more of it. It's just that they've changed their relationship to it. They're very good at feeling uncomfortable. They don't wake up and eat positive self-talk for breakfast. They have just as much self-doubt, worry, negativity, pessimism as any other human being on planet Earth, but they're much more connected to the sustainable behaviours that move them forward, generally from that last bullet point, because they've taken the time to connect to their why. What would you run in front of a car for? What are you asking your employees to do? I'm getting so frustrated, Jonah. They just don't get it. You own the company. They don't. For them, it's a basketball. They're going to step back and let the car hit it. For you, it's your baby. It's your business. You're going to run in front of the car, but you're getting frustrated because they're not diving in front of the road, in front of the car for you. Update your mental model there, champ. You know enough about incentivization or employee, whatever, change the model or let go of your expectation that they're going to behave in the same way as you. But life's about getting after things that matter. I know what I'd jump in front of a moving car for. It's only a few things. They're pretty important to me. I certainly don't need motivation to get out of bed in the morning and get after those things. Thanks for your time. Got time for questions, I believe. Any questions, guys? Who wants to start? One out the back, I'll run around. Uh, first of all, that was absolutely brilliant, Jonah. I think, um, you know, well, I know personally related to a lot of that stuff and a lot of stuff we can immediately take away from one of the exercises was that um that the importance uh, factor and there was that part on values just so i can take that exercise away sure. what do you write in the value section yeah great question didn't have time today to dig into how to actually explore your values but we all have values firstly right so every single human being on planet earth has a rich tapestry of values in our heart who we are what we stand for what's important to us it's just that most of us haven't taken the time to maybe put some words around it or some phrases or just something that we can define as that. Um, some really useful, simple probes I use is, and it sounds, you know, what do you want your best friends and your family to write on your gravestone? Because they're going to be ones writing it, not you. So what do you want them to write? oh, he earned this much money and uh, had this many employees and ran this fast in a marathon. Like, and not just tokenistic stuff like loving, caring. No, come on. You know, honestly, those that know you really intimately, what do you want them to write on your gravestone? And if you stop for a moment and think a bit about that, it's like, well, that's the person you are. For me, it's mastery, curiosity, playfulness and value, right? I'm a much better person when I'm curious. 
I'm a much better person when I pursue this eternal journey of mastery. I read more, I learn more, I talk to people, I want to soak it all in, you know. So it's taking that time to think, you know, when I'm being the best version of myself, what are the things that come to life? What do I want to wake up in the morning and bring to the world? And don't, don't mix up um, outcome with values. Hard work, passion, now they're outcomes, you know. I don't wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to bring hard work to the world. But I wake up and I say, I want to bring mastery and curiosity and, and you know, and then all of a sudden I look, oh, wow, I had a long week or I worked hard, right? So values are those things that are sort of really deep in our heart when we're being the best version. Some will be unique to different domains. My UFC fighter might have combativeness. Well, hopefully that's not in his personal life, right? So it's, it, you know, you'll have some that are specific, but the best values are ones that transcend, Yeah. How can I be vulnerable and a, and a UFC fighter? Oh, really easily if you actually dial that up and learn how to do that. So, yeah, it's often about what's, what's deep within you when you're being the best version of yourself. What do you want said about you at your 60th birthday or at your, at your eulogy? And now it tells you a bit about the man you are. Yeah. Great question. I'm wondering what advice you can give about making the shift from being the glass, having you know the limited resource, and getting to to the jug. Um, it's it certainly makes sense. It's something I want to do. How do, how do I take those steps? Yeah. And what have you seen in terms of making that work? Great question, and not an easy one to answer, right? But the first one is the is the pivot in the relationship. It's if I view myself as a limited vessel, then all I'm doing is comparing how much stress I've got to my threshold. So we, in psychology, we call it metacognitive worry, which is the worry of worry or the judgment of what's going on. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And so now we're just, you know, I'm at, you, you've got this really fixed mindset of my, my limit and therefore you're just doing this. First, so let go of that. Humans can embrace so much more than we think. Honestly, like... Like, we've gone through world wars, we've gone through famines, we've gone, like, people can tolerate so much more than what we think in our somewhat sheltered little bubble at times. So do know that. And the third one is just that relationship to tough internal experience. When it shows up, if the first thing I need to do is I don't like it, and do know that's from neuroscience, right? Like, if, if a snake shows up, our brain will give us the experience of anxiety and make us move away and then the anxiety goes away and that's that reinforcement like, oh, that's good, that, that helps. You know, our brain craves getting rid of emotion. I feel anger. I need to get it out of my system to get rid of it, right? I, I shake the Christmas present because I want to know what's inside of it, right? What's that old saying? Humans prefer the certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty, Right? <laughs> That's why we stay in the job that we don't want. We stay in a relationship that's unhealthy. We don't start the new business, you know, because of that fear of the uncertain. So we need to fundamentally change our relationship to tough internal experience and just see it more as totally normal and my brain doing what brains do, yeah? And then the last bit is a thing called experiential avoidance or experiential acceptance. To grow people's capacity... It's through exposure. So as a psychologist, that's how we 
treat everything, phobia and mood disturbances, and you have to expose the organism to something. Yet we're terrible at it. If we, if we have, I don't know, some nibbles after this and we're sitting around, I always use this metaphor for those who've heard me talk before, and we're having some canapes and I've got some spinach in my teeth and Sean comes up because he's a good bloke and says, hey, Jonah, just letting you know, mate, get a little bit of, and I think, oh, thank you. But then I stop and I think, hang on, I spoke to three other people before. So being the buddy young psychologist, I say, hey, I just want to have a quick chat to you. Um, did I have spinach in my teeth when we chatted? And what normally happens? Um, <laughs> well, yes. And I say, cool, great. Just tell me really quickly, why didn't you tell me? And what's the most common answer? I didn't want to make you feel bad. I say, <laughs> you liar. What? No, I didn't want to make you feel bad. I say, no, you're lying. You didn't want to feel bad. You saw it, you went to say something, and just as you did, you got that little shot of adrenaline and discomfort, and you went, he'll work it out later, <laughs> you know, and you make some rational excuse to avoid. That is experiential avoidance. It happens in every day in our life. A work colleague has literally spinach in their teeth or bad breath. Somebody's doing something at work that's not great, and you want to, oh, oh, it's not my problem, the boss will say something. Whatever that is, we avoid, 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 avoid. The work I spend my life helping people do is learning to experiential accept. Make room for the discomfort, but be very clear in what's at stake here and lean into that. Therefore, I do have that performance conversation with a colleague, even if they break down in tears or think that I'm a jerk or whatever. I do you know, make that courageous decision to take my business to the marketplace or whatever that is. I do put my hand up and say, I want to be an Olympian, even though I'm not yet. And I'm going to tell the world, even though it makes me feel vulnerable. So to grow your capacity, it's about looking at your patterns of experiential avoidance and saying, am I willing to actually increase my appetite for feeling really uncomfortable and expose myself more? And then you update your mental model along the way. Oh, hey, you know, something came from that. So it's about getting after things. Does that answer your question? Um, it was interesting hearing the story about Cam Smith and like in that final five holes, he's so nervous he can hardly drink water. Yep. Um, if I'm in a situation like that where it's the equivalent for me of the British Open for me in my life yep. and I'm experiencing something and it's that powerful, what is in that moment, what does my process look like to, to be able to approach that final five holes and to get the outcome that I'm working towards? Yeah, great question, great question. Um, well, firstly, there's your relationship discomfort. If my athletes don't expect that to show up, then they're going to be caught in that metacognitive panic of, oh no, uh-oh. And if they're holding onto some weird belief like, I can't play well when I'm this nervous, which is a common story. It's not true. It's a common story. Then they're just on fire because all you're going to be doing is trying to control and reduce that internal experience, right? And this is the most important thing. Any breakdown in performance, be it in the sporting arena, in the surgical theatre that I work in, or in the boardroom, is a breakdown of focus. It's not how nervous or how emotional you're feeling. It's what happened to your focus. The number one place your focus goes 
is intrinsically when you're trying to control, suppress, replace, do something with that state. So I'm hoping to Dr. Phil here, but if I don't like my nerves, I don't want to be that nerves, nervous, I believe that I can't perform well when I am in that state, then when it inevitably shows up, I then turn to myself and get all tangled, which is why people just you know lose their ability to focus on what matters. They might, they might look the same, looking at target, going through a pre-shot routine, but the quality of the shot's really poor because you've got cognitive dissonance. You know What you're looking at and what you're focusing on aren't aligned. So step one, back to that model of the triflex. You have to expect some stuff to show up and be willing for that to be the price of entry for doing something hard. So when it does, you say, okay, thanks, brain. Yep, about time it showed up. Okay. And that heart rate can be there or that frustration can be there or whatever. Then it's dropping anchor. Right, so the, ironically, the sipping of the water is one of the techniques that Cam and I used to sort of ground ourselves. So he was trying to do the right thing, <laughs> but it became humour. He like literally was like, "Wow, this, <laughs> thanks, brain. Wow, this is pretty intense." So the normalisation is his superpower. He's really, really good at feeling really, really uncomfortable, but not doing anything with it, just letting it be there, which then meant that he could stay really engaged in what he was doing. And then the last one: do what matters. Don't change. Whatever your British Open is, don't change. Most of my life is helping people not find their wings and lift. It's just do what we've done in training and do it in this context. So don't pick a safer target. Don't decelerate the club face. Don't leave the putt short. Do what you'd normally do. Even though your brain's like, oh, don't stuff it up. That's just the noise. Don't change. So how can you, you know, bring what you've done in training into that environment? I always say competition is an ordinary performance on a special day. Go out and be really boring. Replicate. It's special. So you're going to think and feel and have a whole bunch of stuff going on in your, in your system. Let's expect that. But what we bring to it is really boring and normal. You don't need a lift. You just need to replicate. Where does um, habit formation come into the discussion with creatures of habit? And to make that mental shift is important, but the formation of habits around the supporting behaviour. You hear 21 days to form a habit. I think it's more like 90 based on research. But what guidance, what coaching have you given some of your clients in terms of habit replacement and formation of habits to underpin the performance? A fantastic question. Um, a bit of complexity to that one. Um, certainly some of the science would say that, yes, uh, certain habits do take 90 to 100 days to get some heavy changes in the, in the neural architecture. So you, you want to have some consistency. We know that. But interestingly enough, we often buy into the story that change takes time, and it doesn't. Change doesn't need to take time if there's something of importance at stake. So for me, if I really want to help a client shift a habit, I normally interrogate the importance behind it. If I can dial up their importance to changing whatever it is to the place that it's so important, then you normally get a far quicker change of behavior. It's, it's more about how, yeah, how, how important that is. You know, it's why we see people finally quitting smoking on their deathbed. A bit light, champ. But, you know, finally the message got through. Um, so for me, yes, there is some evidence around I want some consistency and continuity. And when I do performance reviews with my clients, 
honestly, we do like 90-day reviews, right? Like even though footy clubs want to do weekly changes to the team structure and all these quick reactionary stuff, I'm like, how about we just look at, <laughs> you know, a, a little bit of a, a longer epoch. So it does take some time for lasting neural architecture to shift, but I've also helped people you know, quit substance, change fundamental patterns in their lives by dialing up what's at stake, you know. Your life depends on it. Or if you know, if I had a shotgun at, at your favourite pet's head and said, "I don't want you to yell at that in this team meeting," still felt angry, Joanne, but I didn't yell. Oh, how about that? We don't need to send you away to a three-month course on anger management. Connect to the importance. Hey, Joanne, <laughs> over here. Um, I heard this research yesterday around a large food chain that had their chefs, the ones that were most connected with the purpose of the organisation, cooked better food. And so you're talking about, you know, be focused on what's purposeful. And I wonder at scale, how do you scale that so the front line can feel that organisational purpose? Yeah, what a question. It's such a critical question, right? So firstly, let's just take a moment to look at corporate values. And corporate values really matter. Either do them or don't do them. Don't be in between because if you're in between, you make your company worse, right? But if you're going to do values, do values, not decals on walls. And then that's about what the organization's about. And so you're clearly defining for your employees, hey, this is who, who we are and what we're about. But know that every employee will have their own value set. So don't try to impose and say, you must be these. It's can you be you and be an advocate for these when you come to work. So allowing everyone to know that their rich tapestry, what they bring to work is allowed, accepted and needed. And then the piece to your question is about connecting their bit of the complex system to the, to the, you know, to the outcome, right? I mean, there's all those classic cliche of the, the janitor at, you know, Cape Canaveral who said to, you know, what is it? I put man on the moon. And it's like, you know, it's a, lovely, it's a lovely story. Whether it's true or not, it's irrelevant. It's really, really good because it shows that that employee can connect to the greater purpose of what they're doing even though they're mopping floors. So it's about taking the time to realise that. The interdependencies that we need, that the organisation relies on you to do that role, even if it feels like a rather, you know, minor, perfunctory role. Without that, the whole system breaks down. And have something in your system that allows your employees to feel that sense of purpose and value. We all want value in life. Every human being wants to feel valued and that they bring value. Take the time to make sure your employees have that experience. And then we get all those you know, spikes in engagement and less absenteeism, less accidents, less workplace deaths, greater profit, all the usual metrics of engagement that you guys know better than me come simply from allowing that employee, wherever they sit in the organisation, feeling like they are valued and that they create value to the organisation. In your experience, how important is the company that you keep in order to be able to execute in some of the positive habits and strategies spoken about today? <laughs> I get asked that a lot. It's a good question. Um, I've probably not actually interrogated that heavily. I do know that there's some stuff around, you know, surround yourself with people that, you know, have habits that sort of align to you. I think it's more about values alignment than anything. Like when I think about, you know, the, the, the people I keep company with, the people that my clients, they keep company with, 
often it's it's not you know um, it's not very myopic. It's actually quite diverse. But I look for what's the overlapping Venn diagram, and normally it's something around those core tenets, those core values of something, you know. Um, so it's probably more about that. Surround yourself with people that that have some overlapping Venn diagram of your personal value set and theirs, and and you normally then allow much more openness. I think we get really, um, I think we restrict. It's easier to surround ourselves by people who we all like the same footy team, drink the same beer, and vote for the same political party, right? It's just, it's easier. But I think we're limiting ourselves then from the rich tapestry of what the world has to offer. So a lot of, a lot of my advice is be willing to, you know, stretch, but don't compromise on things that you feel are, you know, fundamental to being a good human. That, I don't know if that answered that. I care less about who my best mate votes for. I care more about the type of person he's going to be to my kids as a godfather. Uh, Jonah, I'm uh, maybe making an assumption, but based on your presentation, some of the things you said, um, I think you've got kids. Uh, I've got four teenage kids. I'm really interested in knowing what you consciously say to them now to prepare them for the jungle. Oh, what a question. What a question. Mm, wow. <laughs> My daughter has to, has to be Jack and the Beanstalk next week in in the school play. So she's practicing her lines. I had my laptop open last night and I quickly glanced at these slides I put together on the flight home. And she said, Dad, how are you, how are you feeling about your talk tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm feeling okay, darling, but I'm, I'm actually a little bit nervous. She said, really? Why is that? I said, oh, I guess I worry what people think of me. And that's okay. I said, I'm not worried about the content. I do this for a living. I said, I'm most worried about the clock because I hate having a, having a clock. That's what's making you. The, but I said, but I don't want to stuff up and make a fool of myself. I think that's pretty normal. And so we had this lovely little chat. I said, how are you feeling about your Jack and the Beanstalk thing? I said, I'm feeling a bit, bit nervous too. I said, oh, that's cool. It just means you must, what, yeah, what's that? Where's that from? Well, I just don't want the kids in class to laugh or, you know. So we had this lovely conversation about normalizing being nervous and that's okay and that even dad gets nervous and in that moment I gave her the gift of not seeing me as Superman who's bulletproof who doesn't have any tough internal experience I let her have a little window into me saying all humans worry about what people think and all of a sudden you could see some weight came off her shoulders and she's you know ready to go out there and do her play whilst being a bit nervous so I guess I look for moments of just trying to help my kids understand the normality of the human experience and not sort of deprive her of that. And then, yeah, you know, she's right now literally not at school today because of her knees all blown up and swollen because she did some tumbling at gymnastics. What, you know, take the gloves off, guys. Like, come on, let them, let them experience failure and you know, setbacks and all those things and stop when my own stuff shows, and shows up. Like, I want to, you know, I'll run in front of a car, but I'm not going to run in front of a push bike going down a dirt ramp, you know. So pick and choose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonah, I might just throw one last one at you. 
Uh, you're obviously working with world champions. You're working with billionaires. You're working with surgeons. You're working with you know great corporates. You talk about that notion of building capacity, not wishing for less stress. If you're to only focus on you know one, two, or three things to build that capacity, what would you sort of highlight? It's reverse engineering. It's being really, really specific on what you're chasing. It's like ambiguity is the enemy. Be really, really clear on what you're trying to get after and then truly understand what that involves and what the price of entry for that is. And then are you willing? Willingness is a really important psychological concept. Are you willing to feel whatever's got to be the price of entry? You can't break a world record and not feel an immense amount of pain, whether that's lactic acid or whatever. Right? Like, are you willing to feel that in the service of what you're chasing? You want to float a business on, on the stock? Do you know what that actually involves in terms of the price of entry? Are you willing for the whatever might show up along the way? So, ambiguity is the enemy. Define the end, reverse engineer backwards, and then make a decision on whether you're willing to pay the price of entry. We take this opportunity to give Jonah a big round of applause. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means the world to me. Uh, if you got something of value out of the podcast, I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit. Thanks again for tuning in.